the uh, effort you put into looking after the worship side of things. It's not my gifting, let me tell you. But uh, I, I love it. You know, um, Ainsley contacted me last night to say the people who were rostered on to look after screens and, and uh, the, the sound couldn't be here today. And uh, I thought, well, that's pretty good in a way because I get to be here for the whole of the rehearsal and uh, it's like I get two lots of worship. I just absolutely love it. I love it. And um, I think we're born to worship and, and worship is more than standing up and singing in a church service on a Sunday. And, and I think probably most of us would be happier if we worshipped more. Remember last week I mentioned to you that if we worship just 12 minutes in each day, we actually live longer and we're a lot happier for it. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's a wonderful exchange we have with, with God. And it's a nice little change, isn't it, to have the message of communion wrapped up in a song. And uh, look, that's such, it's so powerful, so powerful. And I hope that that won't be the only time uh, we, we sing through that song. And as I said to you before, I think more and more, I, I reckon, you know, the Lord is leading Ainsley and David in the choice of songs because there are so many Sundays now when I actually feel we've already had a sermon by the time we get to the end of worship. And there's something about the way that those songs flow together. And um, you read through the words, and you sing those words, and they are just so rich with powerful meaning. And I love it. I think, you know, we've been through that stage, of, I guess, of Christian ditties, and, and God, I think, is taking us back, or the, the songwriters, where we're getting back to something more like what drove those classical hymn writers, whose hymns were so clearly based on the Word of God. And I think we're moving back more and more to expression of the Word of God and perhaps a little bit less expression about how I feel about Jesus. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that either, but there just seems to me to be a move of the Holy Spirit amongst the whole of the body of Christ today. See, God is up to something. And many of us do believe that we are living in the end times. We're, 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 we're so closely abutting that, that time that, that Jesus described as the beginning of sorrows. And uh, you know, God is moving. God is not willing that any should perish. His desire is that all should have eternal life. And somehow, you know, we've responded to His invitation. And we've entered into that relationship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ as it were, mediated by the Holy Spirit with us here and now. Amen. And I don't know about you, but I honestly can't remember the last time I slept in on a Sunday. It was probably about 1988. Because <laughs> I wasn't going to church back then. <laughs> I don't recall missing too many Sundays except perhaps when I was overseas for work. I don't recall too many Sundays when I haven't found myself in church. 
Not because I felt an obligation. But I can't wait to be with brothers and sisters worshipping the Lord. And, and perhaps God's given me a, an understanding that might be a little bit different to others. I, I do think there is both the church which is scattered out there in the world. That's us. After we get out of here on Sunday, we're out there in the world. We're rubbing shoulders with people, members of our own families who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we often come under attack You know, Jesus said the world would hate us. But then when we come together on Sunday, you know, we're the body of Christ made up of many members, but we're united. You see, my arm is not up the back of this room somewhere hovering around looking for a body to attach itself to. It's with me always. And, and we're like that as the body of Christ. Last Tuesday night, Tuesday, Wednesday, I think it might have been Wednesday, uh, I was in Sydney all day for meetings and I flew home and went straight to a lecture by a theologian, believe it or not, on the book of Revelation. And uh, he disturbed me a little bit, theologians often do, but he did say something which was very thought-provoking. And it was that we are the second coming of Jesus. And what we read about in the book of Revelation is his final coming because he ain't going to do it again. But he described the first coming of Jesus as a, a revelation of the Father. And as I mentioned a little earlier, when the disciples said, show us the Father, he simply said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and seeing, of course, was more than Mentally imaging somebody. It was knowing them. So if we know Jesus, we know the Father. But then this guy said, we, the church, that is, the body of Christ is the second coming. And that's why Jesus said, go into all the world. And make disciples. See, what did he do when he was on earth? He made disciples. He's saying to us, go into all the world and make disciples. And keep on doing it until he comes the final time. Because he's not going to do it again. That's why I love being with you guys. I, I, and this has been my experience for over 30 years. The, an expectation on a Sunday. When we come together as the body of Christ, I don't know about you, but, but I lose myself in the worship. That's the only way I can describe it. Because, you know, when we just focus on Him and when we worship, that prayer of Jesus in the book of John, that they might be one, it comes to pass. And let me tell you, when we're in unity as the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit has His way. And things change and people change. 
love. I just love it. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm a little bit frightened. I'll come back. Don't let me forget to go through some announcements, but I'll, I'll come back to those in a little while. I'm, we're up to uh, Revelation chapter 8, actually. We're only just going to deal with the first few verses and talk about the, the seventh seal. But I, um, I keep thinking, we've got to have David up here. Because you remember you started out that set series on the history of the church. And yeah. you see, the history of the church keeps right on going, right up into Revelation. And, and I'd love to... I know that it won't happen until after we've got our motors going and all those aeroplanes flying all over the world with electric motors and so on. Praise the Lord, that's going to happen. Hallelujah. Yeah. Hallelujah. I was actually thinking this morning in prayer, I didn't say anything, but this guy's got three motors operandi. <laughs> One person gets it. No? Neil gets it? You can laugh. <laughs> oh, dear me. I should stick to being an economist, don't you? Anyway, I thought that was a little bit funny. <laughs> but I, I'd just love to hear David preaching on this. So it's going to happen one day. <laughs> but no pressure, Dave. No pressure. Um, praise the Lord, it will. Eh? None taken. None taken. <laughs> but I, I am committed to, to going through the whole of the book of Revelation and, and, and most likely by the time I finish it I want to do it all over again because the Lord will have showed me a lot of things I didn't understand before. So what I want to do today is to complete our discussion of the the seven seals. See, last week we went through Revelation chapter 6, which deals with the first six seals. And then uh, chapter 7 is a bit of an interlude until we actually get to the seventh seal. And I'll come back to chapter 7 uh, probably next week. The first few verses of Revelation uh, chapter 8 Read like this. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth. And thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. Well, more cosmic disturbance that affects the earth. As you know, in John's vision, the scroll contained the vision of the end times. We know that it was a very important scroll because it didn't have just one seal on it, it had seven 
seals. Absolutely and utterly impossible to tamper with it. And here we are, we're up to the seventh seal. But before that seal was broken, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. And we're not certain whether that was a literal 30 minutes or whether it was a longer period of time. I think this is very significant because, see, most of the time our understanding of heaven is that it's, in a sense, a, a replication of the temple. And in the temple there was worship. In heaven, most of us understand that there is continuous worship. And, and certainly, that's the image we read in the earlier chapters of the book of Revelation. That there are angelic beings and all they do is worship God. They give Him glory. And they announce to all of the spiritual realm that He is holy, holy, holy. And here we have for this short time in eternity, the whole of heaven falls silent. Commentators are not certain whether that silence is an indicator of awe of God and what is about to happen. Whether it's indicative of reverence for God as He brings to consummation the whole of human history. Some commentators say it's a silence which is indicative of fear of God, a reverential fear of God. Silence implies that every activity ceases. Every activity in heaven ceases as God is about to fully consummate human history and the promises that He has made in His Word. Silence in heaven. Then the seven angels, many would understand those as the seven archangels that attend to God. They stand before Him and they were given Seven trumpets. As I've said before, the, the trumpets can be a signal of impending disaster. They can be a signal calling people together to issue them with instructions. Or they can indicate uh, something new, something changed, something different. And some commentators on the book of Revelation say, those trumpets are... Symbolic of the seven trumpets that there were in the temple. But whatever these trumpets are calling us to give our attention. Another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. 
The um, incense burners used to contain hot ashes and uh, incense oils were poured on them and the fragrance was wafted uh, through, through the temple. And uh, there are some traditions in Christianity today that still use these devices. Uh, I've seen them used in Catholic churches and Anglican churches in particular. And uh, they do. There's a beautiful aroma as a result of the oils that are burning in them. But here we see that the incense is mixed with the prayers of the saints. The prayers of God's Could we ever imagine the number of prayers and the intensity of the prayers of the martyrs throughout the whole of human history? We saw earlier in the book of Revelation the martyrs crying out to God, How long? How long? You see, God is a God of justice and because we are made to be like Him, we have a strong, strong desire for justice. You often see this in small children. You know, if one child in a family, the Hamiltons, I'm sure you're aware of this, if one child gets a larger portion, they see the injustice and they protest about it. God has no difficulty in receiving the prayers of the martyrs who are crying out, How long? When will we see justice? But you see, He's also a God of mercy. And His desire is that none, none, none should reject Him and ultimately spend eternity in the lake of fire with the devil and the demons. We can't ascribe human emotion to, to God, I don't think. Because God exists outside of time. We find it difficult to experience more than one emotion at a time. So we can sing out for justice or we can act in mercy, but it's difficult for us to do both. But because for God, in a sense, the whole of human history is kind of on a pinhead. That's not a... I mean, it doesn't really work. You can't put time onto a pinhead. But in a very real sense, the whole of human history is on a pinhead as far as God is concerned because He doesn't live in the dimension that we call time. But these are the prayers of the martyrs down through the ages crying out for justice. How long? Well, see, God actually hears those prayers. And ultimately, ultimately, He vindicates the martyrs. He vindicates all who have been persecuted. But it might not be at a time that is convenient for us. 
the smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar. And then comes the unsealing of that seventh seal. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth and thunder crashed, lightning flashed and there was a terrible earthquake. These are the things that Jesus described as the beginning of sorrows. There's stuff happening in the heavenly realm and there's a reflection of it in the earth as well. What I want to do for the next couple of minutes is just take stock of where we've got to so far. I don't know how long it's going to take you to get to the end of the book of Revelation. And we won't actually do it every week. But I think it's so easy for us to forget where we've been, isn't it? So what I'd like to do is to just summarise the seven... I haven't quite, oh, I haven't quite got it all on that on the screen there. But um, there are seven seals. That's down the, the, first, the first column. And associated with the first four seals, we saw four horses. And each of those horses represented something significant, physically or spiritually. The white horse was a representation of international power politics. Some commentators believe it was representation of a conqueror. Some say Jesus. But the approach I took, which I feel is more consistent with the nature of the other horses, is that it represents international power politics. When we have a look at the words of Jesus in response to the disciples asking him, when will the end come? How will we know when the end is coming? One of the things Jesus said to them was, there will be wars and rumours of wars, and nation would rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So we see wars among nations. The red horse, the second seal, civil war and strife. And uh, Jesus talked about wars among kingdoms. And I explained that those kingdoms are not necessarily nations. They're people groups. Or if you like, people holding different worldviews. There'll be clashes. Jesus said, the world will hate us. That's what he said. The world will hate us. The black horse, economic disruption, and specifically inflation. Jesus talked about famines. Inflation is not always associated with, with famines, but often is. Inflation is simply caused by a shortage of the things that people want to buy. And in the book of Revelation, we see that the price of basic commodities that we need, the necessities of life, increase substantially. And so there'll be some people for whom it is a famine because they won't have the financial resources to buy what they need even to sustain life. The pale horse is a representation of disease and death. And Jesus talks about pestilences in the final days. Or in the, the, uh, 
work, work up to the, to the final days. The fifth seal is the cry of the martyrs. Jesus said, for us who follow Jesus, there will be tribulation. That was the word which he used. And we will be hated by all nations. Wow. That's a pretty strong statement. The uh, sixth seal, cosmic disturbances associated with earthquakes and the possibility of a, a meteorite strike as well. And then the seventh seal, a period of silence in heaven, followed by more of this cosmic disturbance. And it's interesting that at this time, when Jesus was in Jesus' response to his disciples, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached. And it will be preached in all the earth. You know what? His church will fulfill the Great Commission. The gospel will indeed be preached to all nations. And there will be disciples coming out of every nation on earth. And it just means people group. It doesn't necessarily mean a political nation. And we're seeing an increased fervour for uh, mission work all over the world today. In fact, a lot of the countries where the United Kingdom and, and Australia and other so-called Western countries sent missionaries, they're sending missionaries back into our nations now. Because we need them. So few in countries like Australia and North America and in Europe, but particularly in Europe, so few are actually committed as Christians. There are still plenty of cultural Christians, particularly in the United States, but the people who are thoroughly committed irrevocably to his word and who demonstrate it by the way in which they live, not a very high proportion of people at all. In Australia, at least on the basis of a McCrindle survey, about 5% of the population. 5%, 1 in 20. I see, they include people in my own family. Brothers, sisters, parents, cousins, aunties, uncles. And for many of us, that's our experience as well. But the gospel of the kingdom will be preached. There'll be nobody, nobody who is not given the choice of following Jesus. Just another reminder too, you know, we, we, we can ourselves get caught up in fear when we read through the book of Revelation. And of course, I'm kind of spreading out the torture over a long, long period of time. But remember the words of that song we sang for communion. We walk with the King. Right? You and I, we walk with 
the king. So no matter what we might personally experience, we walk with the king. Ultimately, ultimately, we have the victory. Yesterday, at Saturday Brecky Connect, we started a series by Carl Fays. Um, he's an Australian guy. He was a Baptist pastor. He is not pastoring anymore, but he's doing a lot of pastoring for pastors. He's a really nice guy. I have had the privilege of meeting him. I can't say he's a friend. I don't know him all that well, but I have met him. And um, I appeared on a panel with him a couple of years ago, actually, which was part of the activities associated with the G20 meeting when that was held in, in Brisbane. He's now done a couple of uh, video series and the one we're working through is really directed at people who either are Christians or who are kind of tossing up whether or not they want to become Christians. And the very first in his series was suffering. And of course, there are so many people in the world who would say, God is a good God, yet there's all this suffering, then it, you know, there's no way we can believe in a God like that. And uh, all Christians at some time will be confronted by that question. If God is a good God, how come there's all this suffering? Well, the video kind of explains through a series of interviews why, why that comes about. And of course, we understand we live in a fallen world and uh, we're sometimes subject to the fallenness of that world. And uh, the other theological uh, reason is that God gave us freedom and freedom is very costly because he gave us freedom to make choices. And not everybody makes good choices. And sometimes the bad choices that other people make affect us. So, that's not really the point I wanted to make, but uh, it, you know, one of the comments made by someone who was here yesterday was, gee, if that's the first in the series, how tough are they gonna get by the time we get to number 10? Wow. But it's very good, and he, he's a good guy. Um, Carl Face, those of you who listen to um, Vision Media, he does a, what's the name of his little, he does a little two minute thing every day. Juice, Juice as well, yep, on the Gold Coast. Can you remember the title of his? Nudge, the Daily Nudge. It's called the Daily Nudge and they're very, very good. Anyway, um, yeah, he's a good man. So, uh, but, but one of the points that was made, he was interviewing uh, a medical doctor by the name of Frank Brennan, not, not the father Frank, Professor Frank Brennan, and uh, who was a palliative care, who specialised in palliative care. And, and he was asked this question about suffering and how does it relate to patients? And he said, one of the things that I will say to them is, the one thing that this disease cannot take from you is your spirit. It can't take your past from you, and it can't take your spirit. I'll tell you what, exactly the same thing applies to us. If we find ourselves hated by the world, if we find ourselves persecuted, our persecutors can never take away the joy of the Lord. They can never take it away. It's our choice. So no matter what happens to us, Nobody, nobody can take away what we have through Christ.
nobody. That's why you have the ultimate victory. No circumstance and no person can ever take away what we have through Jesus Christ. No circumstance, no sickness, no disease, no accident, no persecution, none of it can take away what we have through Jesus. I love that. I love that. Anyway, I want to take us all the way back to the opening few sentences of uh, the book of Revelation. Because as you would understand, they didn't have books back in early church days. They never had anything like this, of course. What they had was scrolls. What was written down by that time in human history was written on scrolls. And the scrolls were, were rolled. So unlike a modern day book, which will have a title page and it's got some... Um, uh, credits in it and so on and then probably have a table of contents page numbers and so on so you can find your way through the manuscript on these scrolls of course they didn't have a title page because they didn't have pages in a scroll so it's good for us I think to remind ourselves of the title and the credits that are associated with the book of Revelation Typically on a scroll, the, the opening passage would convey the title and often also the credits. The first couple of verses of Revelation 1 say, This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what we must never forget, even when we read through some of the scary things that are recorded in the book of Revelation, that the fundamental purpose of the book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's revealed in the book of Revelation as the Lamb and the Lion. The meek, innocent Lamb that went to the cross and shed his blood. But the Lion, the Lion of Judgment. So it's a revelation from Jesus. And the Greek can actually be interpreted of as well. So it may be worth considering that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, the Greek translated soon can also be translated suddenly or, or quickly. So it may be that worrying too much about trying to fit an historical timeline to the book of Revelation could be a bit of a waste of time. And that what is recorded in the book will happen suddenly. There are some credits here too, of course. The angel, it was the angel who mediated the vision 
and it was John who wrote it down. What we see in the book of Revelation is his report of what the angel had actually said to him. So with that in mind, I just want to share with you a, a little diagram. And I'm not saying that this is a little diagram that would end any conversation or debate on the book of Revelation. But it just helps us, I think, put into some kind of perspective the, the way in which the book is structured. As I mentioned way back, the very first discussion point on the book of Revelation it's not necessarily a nice, neat timeline. Not all of the action happens on the earth. Some of the action happens in the spiritual realm as well. And this is one way, potentially, of understanding it. That, in a sense, there are two stages. There's a main stage, which is earth. And then there's a, a choir loft or a mezzanine floor. Which is, which is heaven. And uh, I know you can't all see this. Some of the font is a little bit small and I do apologise for that. But after the introduction, we get the seven letters to the church. And remember, they have a meaning for the historical churches, for the church as a whole and also for us as individuals. Then we move on to the seals. Probably next week we'll start talking about the trumpets. Then a little later on, by the time we get a bit over halfway through Revelation, the uh, angels, and then the bowls of judgment. Some of you will be familiar with those already. And finally, we get to the point where Christ returns, and we'll have some discussion about whether that's when Jesus comes back for the church, or whether Jesus returns for the church a little earlier, and then returns with the church a little later. A thousand years reign and then a brand new universe, new heaven and a new earth. One might reasonably conclude that all of that happens on the earth. But there's a whole lot of action going on in the spiritual realm as well. There's a scene in heaven which really describes a, a heavenly temple that we've dealt with already in our earlier discussions. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, which we've skipped for the time being, talks about the sealing of the 144,000. And then they are mentioned again a little bit further, or that number at least is mentioned a little bit further on in the book of Revelation. Later on in chapter 8, there's the vision of an incense altar. Chapter 10, a little scroll. Um, you might have some recollection that, that John was actually asked to, to eat a little scroll. Well, that happens here. And uh, the seventh trumpet, it may be argued, is a representation of what's happening in heaven. A chorus and bowls about uh, chapter 15. And then 17, 18, uh, and the early part of 19, there's a whole lot of disruption in the spiritual realm. That's where great battles between Babylon and the beast are recorded and ultimately Babylon is fallen and then the hallelujah chorus which is symbolic of 
the end of the uh, disturbances in heaven, the end of the cosmic disturbances. So we, we'll work our way through this gradually over the next uh, little while, possibly not every Sunday because I'm not sure that I will always have time. It does take a lot of time to, to sort through this. It's interesting, when I went to this lecture by the theologian on Wednesday night, the first thing he said, after telling us a little bit about himself, was, it grieves me so that not, sorry, it grieves me so that pastors do not preach from the book of Revelation, from the pulpit. I nearly put up my hand and said, excuse me, we'll be up to number 10 this Sunday. <laughs> I didn't. I leaned over to the person next to me and said, I've already done nine. <laughs> but it, I understand why people don't want to preach from it because, as I said to you before, you can pick up five or ten different so-called experts and they've all got different viewpoints. But I don't believe that the Bible is full of secrets that we can't access. God is not like that. Remember we talked about hiding Easter eggs a little while ago? When we hide Easter eggs for little kids... We hide them so that they can find them. And uh, if God hides anything from us, he hides things from us like we hide Easter eggs for little children. So we're going to continue working our way through. Don't get too morose. Don't get too down in the dumps because we got the victory. I used to play a song on my radio program that said, I've read the back of the book and I know who wins. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We all win. We win because we've made that choice to become brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ and to gather together as the body of Christ at times like this to allow him to minister to us so that we are then prepared to be scattered out there in the world once we get out of these, out of these doors. Now, folks, one other thing I just want to share with you which doesn't really fit anywhere um, in my preamble to uh, the book of Revelation, I, I talked a little bit about this. I think it's just worth reminding ourselves very briefly that, broadly speaking, there are four interpretations of the book of Revelation in terms of where it fits in human history. Uh, uh, Pre-terrorism basically suggests that a lot of what is recorded in uh, Revelation happened in AD 70 with the sacking of uh, Jerusalem but it was all over by about 400 AD. So it was all about the persecution of the early church. Historicism says, well, Revelation has been being fulfilled since uh, the resurrection of Jesus and is still being fulfilled. Um, idealism says, well, no, it's really just a picture of the battle between good and evil that's been going on ever since. Humanity began on earth. Not a lot of followers of idealism these days. And then futurism suggests that most, if not all, of the book of Revelation is yet to be fulfilled. So most commentators, most theologians would fall into one of those four categories. And the way in which I've been presenting uh, the book of Revelation falls mostly in that last category that there is much in the book of revelation that is yet to be fulfilled and i might spend a little bit more time 
in a few weeks explaining why I take that position. I think when you read the book of Revelation in the context of the whole of the Bible, that's probably um, the most logical way in which to understand 